This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ever become a bad boy or anything I read? Yeah, when I was a little older, Tommy did take me the bat boy. They had a rain delay. That was one of the first times actually I was hitting. And Tommy was coming down the cage and he said, who the heck is that hitting? <laughs> Today's guest is one of only two New York Mets to have his number retired. The other, of course, being the great Tom Seaver. He batted 308 with 427 home runs, including a record 396 hit as a catcher. As a lifelong Mets fan, it's my special pleasure to welcome in Hall of Famer Mike Piazza to game time. And Mike, welcome aboard, man. It's great to see you. Thanks, Boomer. It's good to be with you, man. All right, so I got some pretty good news for you. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I found this on rotowire.com. It's one of the bigger fantasy sites out there these days. You're listed as a 52-year-old free agent designated hitter available. Uh, you know, so how would you think you'd do against today's pitching as opposed to when you played? Oh, wow. Man, you know as well as anybody, once, uh, once the cobwebs start taking hold, it's really tough to... Uh, to get it going again. I, I remember when, when Steve bought the team, a lot of the fans, you know, he was asking the fans what they wanted as far as bringing back certain traditions. And everyone was like, bring back the old timers game. And I'm like going, no, no old timers <laughs> game. Because, you know, we're going to get out there and everyone's going to say like, you know, we hit a home run. And I'm like, I don't even know I could get it out of the infield anymore. So I tell people, be careful what you ask for, you know? Yeah, well, here, even more good news for you. I found a bunch of analytics geeks came up with this deal that uh, analytically you are a better defensive catcher than anybody ever gave you credit for. And I'm just wondering, had we all known about that when you retired, would you have gotten into the Hall of Famer a little bit quicker? Well, I think one of the things that's always fun about sports is is thinking about the what ifs and, and things like that. And especially the last decade with all these new uh, ways to measure um, the, the um, effectiveness as a player and being a hitter actually helped me a lot as a catcher because I knew hitting, I knew what hitters were looking for. And I was able to kind of really take that information behind the plate as a hitter and, and help my pitching staff. And I don't know the exact number, obviously it's been a while, but I mean, I think six times my staffs led the league in ERA. So as a catcher, obviously throwing is an important part, but it's not the most important part of your game. It's about, getting your pitcher in a rhythm, getting your pitcher through the game and having him feel very comfortable with you to block, to throw a pitch in the dirt. Obviously now uh, there's not as much blocking the plate because they changed the rule on the slide, but um, you know, I had some big collisions and, and had to, to basically, you know, get, get hit a few times, give up my body for the team. So 
um, those, those are things I was also very proud of. You know, you chose to go into Cooperstown as a New York Met, and you just mentioned Steve. That would be Steve Cohen, the new owner of the New York Mets. He's kind of liberated all of us, and he's made the game exciting for us. He's involved with uh, the fans on social media and Twitter. What's your take on him and your, your feel for what he's going to do with the Mets? One of the positive things about Steve, and, and it maybe goes back to the old love him or hate him, the Steinbrenner days, is that I believe fans love it when the owner is out in front and is uh, in the spotlight and take the hard questions. So I think that's the most important thing that he's kind of shown, man. Good or bad. I mean, you have to be accountable. And that's one thing for me as a player that I've always uh, stressed is that you hit a game-winning home run, you have to be out in front. You you strike out with the bases loaded, lose the game, you've got to be out there. And, and I think the media, especially in a city like New York, especially in a city like New York, respects that. When you signed your seven-year, $91 million contract, you said that you were frightened by paralysis because the amount of money, the expectations, <laughs> everything that comes along with it. You know, a guy could be going through that right now as Francisco Lindori signs a 10-year, $341 million contract, and he has just gotten off to a horrendous start. If you had words of wisdom that you could impart on Francisco Lindor, what would it be? For me, it's just play the game and relax. Just be yourself. I mean, you know, pressure is such a self-inflicted thing. And when you have expectations, obviously the money, because it's a, it's a big thing, it's something we all talk about, and it's a great contract. I think he's definitely earned it. He's worked his butt off. But ultimately, things kind of shift. You know, when you're playing for a contract, it's a different energy than when you get the contract. And then the pressure is to continue to perform new team, new market, big contract. He's going to press. And, and I think when things, you know, the cream rises to the top, all these cliches are there for a reason. I think at the end of the day, he's going to have his numbers at the end of the end of the year, if he stays healthy. All right. Well, as a Met fan, you're making me feel better. If it makes you feel any better. <laughs> when Mike Piazza was 15 years old, a friend of his father's arranged for Ted Williams to visit their home and watch Mike hit. Teddy Ballgame declared, I guarantee you this kid will hit the ball. I never saw anyone who looked better at his age. Now, Mike, Ted Williams at your house, I mean, did you have any sense of who Ted Williams was when you were a 15-year-old? Absolutely. I mean, that was the interesting sort of um, situation is my father was actually being Italian-American. He was a DiMaggio fan, but he was, all, he was actually a bigger Ted Williams fan. And we were fortunate. Uh, there was a scout in the area who was very close friends with them. And Ted was doing an autograph show in King of Prussia close to her house. And the scout's name was Eddie Libertor. He used to scout with the Dodgers and the Orioles. And he said to Ted, he goes, you know, my, my friend has this kid. And he has a cage in the backyard. And he's a pretty good-looking hitter. And Ted's like, Ted's like, let's go see him hit. <laughs> and uh, next thing I know, Ted Williams is in my backyard. And he said, did you, did you, did you hear my about my book. And I said, I memorized it. So, you know, I had his book, The Science of Hitting. So yeah, I did know who he was and I was extremely nervous. And it was just one of those experiences that you can never imagine as a kid, you know, having the greatest hitter, arguably the greatest hitter in the history of the game, last player to hit 400, last hitter to hit 400, be in your backyard and talking about hitting. You loved a certain guy who played for the Phillies. Now I respected the guy, but he always killed us as Mets, and that's Mike Schmidt. And yeah. Mike Schmidt was your guy growing up. How did you model yourself after him and what he became as a Philly? Yeah, Schmitty was an interesting um, story for the Phils. I mean, obviously an amazing player, one of the, probably the greatest, if not the greatest, fielding 
third baseman in history. But I would put him up there with like Brooks Robinson. A lot of home runs, a lot of walks. I mean, Schmidt, he was one of those guys. I think he was one of those Moneyball guys before Moneyball ever even existed. Great play discipline, but was just a pure power hitter. And a really interesting guy. I mean, it, it's funny. I always, as a kid, remember talking talk about playing in New York and Philadelphia. I mean, Schmidt hit a home run in the second or third inning and then strike out or hit into a double play in the seventh inning and get booed off the field. And I just remember <laughs> talking to my dad. I'm like, why are they booing Schmidt? And my dad's like, they boo everybody here. You know, it's not it's just the way it is. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, Schmidt was uh, – was just a great player on some great teams. I mean, I loved all those Phillies teams of the 70s. And we talk about your love of baseball. Your dad, obviously, every step of the way is right there with you. He was friendly with Tommy Lasorda. But, you know, how did, how has that relationship developed? Yeah, I mean, Tommy and my father grew up together. Tommy was a few years older than my dad. And um, when they were kids, I mean, in Norristown, Pennsylvania, I mean, my father told me he used to watch Tommy because Tommy was a, a – a, really good player in his own right. I mean, not big of stature by any stretch of the imagination, but a real gutsy left-handed pitcher who had a great curveball. They just kind of always kept in touch throughout their lives. My father, you know, went into the army and then went into, uh, into the car business and, and Tommy went into baseball. And after his playing days were over, he became a scout, a minor league coach, and they just always would reconnect in the off season. So I remember as I think it was 75 or 76 going down to a game as a kid. And Tommy was a third base coach before he became the manager for Walter Alston. And my dad called out to Tommy and Tommy came over to the, to the railing at the vet. I'm like, wow, my dad knows one of the coaches of the team. So that's when I was first introduced to Tommy. Were you, uh, did you uh, ever become a bat boy or anything I read? Like, did you? Yeah, when uh, I was a little older, um, yeah. he, Tommy did. Uh, make me the bat boy and uh, they had a rain delay that was one of the first times actually I was hitting and all the guys had finished hitting and Mark Cressy who was the coach said hey Manny you want you to throw some BP to Mike and Manny's like get in the cage so I grabbed the bat and I just started swinging and was crushing the ball I mean I was probably 14 years old maybe 13 or 14 and Tommy was coming down the cage and he said to uh, Cressy he said in his own colorful language who the is that hitting you know and and each you know mark cresty said that that's michael hitting and tommy came over was watching me hit he he was floored you couldn't believe it he said i, I can't believe the way the ball's dumping off this guy's back and he said he's got a chance he's a prospect so that was the first time tommy saw me hit when i was made back boy. so if there isn't the relationship between your dad and tommy lasorda is there a hall of famer mike piazza that's a good question. I probably would say no, only for the fact that um, coming out of Pennsylvania, I was a pretty good player. And I went to the University of Miami on a, on a partial scholarship in 1987. I had scouts that were calling me. But Tommy called up uh, uh, the general manager at the Dodgers and the scouting director and said, we, we're going to draft Michael. And then when they drafted me, it was obviously the last round and I was going to go back to school. And Tommy said to, to Ben Wade, who was the scouting director of the Dodgers, he says, you, you better go look at Michael. So Ben said, well, can he come out here? So then he threw me on a plane to Los Angeles, and I started hitting in the pregame. And again, Ben Wade couldn't believe it. He was like, I can't believe we never heard of this kid, wow. or at least you know, our scout didn't really didn't think much of him. That's when Tommy said to Ben Wade, listen, if this kid can hit like that, and he was a shortstop, would you sign him? Ben Wade said, I'd sign him now. 
And he goes, if this kid is a catcher and he hits like that, would you sign him? And Ben Wade said, I'll sign him right now. And Tommy said, he's a catcher. <laughs> and Ben said, no, he's not. He's a first baseman. And, and Tommy said, he's a catcher. We're making him a catcher. So that's wow. how the story happened. It was crazy. On Saturday night, July 8, 2000, just three days before he was to be the National League starting catcher in the All-Star game, Mike Piazza stepped to the plate against Roger Clemens in the top of the second inning at Yankee Stadium. Now, Piazza was 7 for 12 against Clemens, including home runs in his last three games against the powerful right-hander. Two pitches later, a 98-mile-an-hour fastball to the head sent Piazza sprawling with a concussion. And Mike, one of the scariest moments I think I've ever seen in a baseball game was that very moment. Now, y'all want to ask you a question legitimately. Do you think that he was thrown at you or do you think the ball slipped out of his hands? Well, I stated many times I, I definitely thought he was thrown at me. I mean, I, I don't know if he, and again, maybe giving him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if he really wanted to hurt me that badly or didn't think it was uh, going to be that. Um, uh, dangerous, but uh, uh, to me, when someone has as good as control as he does, and next thing you know, the ball's coming coming up towards the uh, coconut. The catcher, I know. I mean, eventually, I started thinking he's probably going to try and brush me back a little bit. I would think that would that would definitely be coming. And I've said many times, I've I've never had a, a problem with anyone throwing inside. Uh, but I think at that point, maybe as you mentioned, the numbers, I was wearing him out pretty good and he just probably got frustrated and um just decided to let one fly and uh yeah i mean looking back i'm just uh, i'm glad i'm still alive because i feel like if i didn't get my, <laughs> my head down it could have been a lot yeah. more dangerous oh it doesn't end there i mean you go all the way to the world series and as i said two really good teams you're in new york you know the pressure you know the atmosphere and then all of a sudden comes the first inning and you have a bat that gets Cut in half, the barrel yeah. of the bat goes out to, to the pitcher's mound. He picks it up. He throws it in your direction. What, what are you thinking at that moment? Do you feel like he was but, trying to throw that bat at, back at you? The context of the situation, because of all the animosity and, and the hype and all of the excitement and being in the World Series, and then if you think about what are the percentages of a bat breaking and actually ending up where he catches the end of the bat. I mean, I don't think you could really imagine anything so bizarre in a way. And then his reaction of, of chucking the bat, you know, and out of disgust, almost like, and I've theorized this. And again, I don't know, because everyone's going to have their own opinion. Maybe he thought I was throwing the bat. Maybe he was just such a adrenalized up from adrenaline and excitement of the game that he just kind of just grabbed it and threw it. Maybe he didn't really know if I was running, you know, because again, I couldn't pick up the ball because the bat must have had um, some kind of unseen hairline crack in it, which I didn't know. Just kind of hit like almost like a diamond cutter, you know, just kind of hit that bat and the bat just imploded, which does happen occasionally. But in the World Series with all the excitement and hype, uh, no one could imagine something that bizarre happening. And so... I always say it's kind of crazy. You know, I hit a home run in that game off of Jeff Nelson, who to me is one of the toughest relievers I've ever hit off in my life. And no one really cares. You know, no <laughs> one, it's just about that. I mean, I guess if we would have won the World Series, it would have made it a little bit more palatable. But uh, that's part of just life. I can't explain a more bizarre situation.
Well, just remember, you got beamed earlier in the year, and then you come yeah. back and you had this whole situation happen. It was crazy. Real quick question for you. If you were on the Hall of Fame committee, do you think Roger Clemens should be in the Hall of Fame? I always try to shy away from that because people are going to always look at my opinion as, as, as having obvious experience with the situation. I mean, his numbers definitely warrant it. I mean, I, I don't think there's any question of that whatsoever. But I think as a, as a player, you, at least myself personally, have to surrender to the process. So the voters are the ones they have the opinion. They obviously feel at this point that they're that he hasn't been admitted. And, and that's the way it is. I mean, I, as you mentioned, I had to wait a few years myself and that's just, that's part of the process. So I don't know what's going to happen eventually with the uh, veteran committee, but uh, you know, I'll just be as curious as anyone, but as far as his numbers, of course, I mean, I don't think anyone could argue with that. In his emotional 2016 Hall of Fame induction speech, Mike Piazza told the Cooperstown audience, September 11, 2001 is a day that forever changed our lives. But from tragedy and sorrow came bravery, love, compassion, character, and eventual healing. And being a part of that night and the home run that you hit to win the game against the Atlanta Braves, as you're rounding the bases, you are a part of one of the most amazing memories I've ever been a part of. What did that feel like to be the center of it? I, as I've mentioned before, I think as a player and as, as a human being, certain things happen in your life that uh, you just have to be open to some sort of spirit, some sort of destiny, some sort of, of plan. And um, I, I can't explain it. I was just in the right place at the right time. I had a lot of people pulling for me and I felt it. And you, again, as a player, you know this, there's times where you kind of slow the game down. The game almost moves in slow motion in real time. And that was just one of those moments where I walked up to the plate and it just, I couldn't hear anything. I felt 100% focused. And fortunately, I squared a ball up. And it was just, uh, as you mentioned, something that uh, just could never imagine happening. You know, this year will mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Will you come back for that game? Yeah, I've already gone on record saying that I'll be back. It's going to be difficult uh, because, as you well know, living something like that, uh, as much as I love to, it's very important to remember those that we lost, but it's also very painful as well. So it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of mixed emotions. I mean, some joy because of out of sadness and, and of a lot of the, the tragedy of that week. There's some really great stories as far as perseverance and love. But yeah, it's going to be difficult because it is something that I think affected us all. It certainly did. And for that one uh, fleeting moment, man, we all came together. There's an Italian proverb that says, if you can't live longer, live deeper. And so Mike Piazza and his family have been pursuing La Dolce Vita in Italy. So uh, I want you to help me with a little bit of Italian here, if you will, okay? Uh, I'm gonna try. Six, four, three, double play. Uh, Sei, quattro, tre, doppio play. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Bad umpires give me agita. Oh boy. Male o cattivo is bad. <laughs> they still say umpire. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Let's go, Mets. Die Mets. You can say die or you can say andiamo. 
and it was uh, funny. A friend of mine who went over and played, he said, they're saying his name was Bill. They're going, die, Bill. And he goes, why do they want me to die? <laughs> I like Andiamo Mets. I like Andiamo. Andiamo Mets. You did well. Yeah, bravissimo. Mike, it's so great to see you and so great to have you on Game Time. Thanks so much for joining us today. And to all of you out there for watching, I'm Boomer Esiason, and I'll see you again real soon right here on Game Time with three-time Olympic Beach Volleyball gold medalist Kerry Walsh Jennings and her partner, Brooke Sweat.